Today we're going to be considering something that I think needs to be talked about more in church. And this is an area, I just want to confess on the front end, this is an area of weakness in my own life. And it, honestly, it's probably a weakness in many of our lives, especially uh, in the culture in which we live where political correctness and the absence of any sort of solid truth um, is so prevalent uh, that conflict uh, is very challenging for us. And we're going to be dealing with this concept of grace confronting today. And we're going to look at verses 11 through 14. And remember, Paul is dealing uh, with the churches in Galatia. He is writing a letter to these churches that he planted. Uh, and it, the letter was meant to be circulated amongst these churches. But after he had planted the churches, uh, and really there was probably this kind of gospel revival, awakening, all these people getting saved. Not long after he left, uh, a group of teachers uh, entered in, those who believed in Jesus, but felt that the way to sanctification, the way to the to transformation of the life meant that we need to go back to the Torah, back to the Old Testament law. And Paul uh, is vehemently arguing against this. Remember in chapter one, he says, if anyone preaches to you another gospel than that which you have received, uh, he goes, even if an angel appeared to you and gave you another gospel, let them be an anathema, let them be accursed. Uh, and, and now he, he's been defending himself, his, his uh, apostleship, because what's at stake is not his ego. What's at stake is his message. Uh, if they can diminish his authority as an apostle, they can throw out his message as well. And so last week we considered how he was actually given, he says in Galatians chapter 2, verse 9, uh, he was given the right hand of fellowship by the pillars of the church, Peter and James. So he's saying, listen, the message that I received from Jesus directly was confirmed by Peter and James, the pillars of the church. We were all preaching the same gospel. But then he goes on into the text which we're going to look at today, and I want us to read these verses together. Look what he says, uh, Cephas being Peter. He says, but when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted, this is a strong language, hypocritically, uh, which uh, in the Greek, hypocrite is the best we can come up with for English translation, but in the Greek, it literally means play acting, uh, performing, not being, not being genuine hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not, and I love this statement, was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, to Peter, before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? And so Paul is basically saying that Peter has fallen into the trapping uh, that many of us can fall into uh, which is first a fear of man, which then leads to hypocrisy, and the hypocrisy ultimately ended with legalism. What is at stake here is the gospel, the central gospel message that through the life and the death of Jesus, who is the fulfillment of Torah, uh, who is the one who has brought a close to this, 
this passing evil age and has, has brought in a new creation, a new age by which the church is to live from. Under this reality, Jesus says that the gospel, that through him, that all people should come. If I be lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. That the gospel was meant to include Jews and Gentiles. And what is at stake, really, there's racial tensions on, in, in an undercurrent here. And that, that the gospel, uh, in order to be in, not only do you need to put your faith in Jesus, but you also need to make yourself essentially, at least outwardly, a Jew. You need to get circumcised. You need to follow Torah. You need to keep the law. And Paul is fighting against this tooth and nail throughout this letter. Uh, and here, he challenges. He shares a story. Now, why would he put this into the letter? If he just got done saying, Peter and James actually gave me the right hand of fellowship, and then he immediately turns around and says, I confronted Peter to his face because he stood condemned. Now, it almost feels like he's inserting, like you have to choose between Peter and me. That's not what he's doing. What Paul is most certainly doing is that these false teachers that had come in were very much aware of this public controversy that happened between Paul and Peter and were utilizing this, this controversy to undermine Paul's authority in the region. And what Paul wants to, first of all, make sure that we understand is that Peter and James have agreed that he is carrying the true gospel. And that, yes, there was a controversy in Antioch, but the controversy wasn't because of my failing. It actually was because of my brother Peter's temporary failing. And what we need to understand is that the challenges of conflict and confrontation uh, within a community is very real. And what we need in order to enter into conflict, and what we're, when we read these words, we can think, oh, like, Paul hates Peter, and, you know, actually, historically, there's been debates in the church over whether Paul overstepped his authority because of those that view Peter as the first, essentially the first pope, that, that, and that he is without sin. Martin Luther writes in great detail about this very text, saying, you can debate all you want about whether or not Peter had sin or not, but Paul was not in the wrong in defending the gospel. And we could say that there is none who are without sin, that all have fallen short of the glory of God. And Peter is a man just like Paul, and all of us are prone to get off of the narrow path of righteousness, to lose step with the true gospel. And this is why we need community. So I want you to read this rebuke, this, this statement, not as Paul against Peter, but Paul who in love wants to restore Peter just as he wants to restore the Galatian churches. Uh, back to the gospel. And I think that this is powerful because conflict is necessary and impossible to avoid if we actually live life with others. <laughs> this is important. To exist uh, in community means to be in conflict. I mean, I adore my wife, Darcy. I adore my kids. And, but we are passionate people. Now, I know some families who are so chill that they never get in fights. And man, kudos to you, if that's you. Uh, we've got a couple of those on staff, and I just think it's amazing. But at Darcy and I actually went to a counselor together, and the counselor actually said to us, he goes, you know, most times within a marriage, maybe you have one person in the marriage that on a passion level is, you know, over a five. Like, you know, if the passion level is like one to 10, you know, maybe you got one that's like 
working at a very intense level all the time. Uh, and he goes, but you and Darcy, he goes, you two, you guys are both at like a 9.9. Uh, and I'm like, what do you mean? You mean when Darcy and I got in a silly fight about something stupid and she jumped out of a moving car? That, that is not normal behavior. Uh, and, and he's like, no, no, that's not. But that's just our passion. We love each other so deeply. We're so committed, covenantally committed to each other that we will correct in love. We want to grow as human beings, we want to grow into the likeness of Jesus. But here's the thing with conflict and with entering into controversy is that the relational bridge has to be intact. I can say this honestly as a pastor. There are many people, I always invite if there's a critique or there's something, a question about something I said, man, please send me an email, ask me questions. That's, that's fine. Uh, and we need to always humble ourselves be, uh, to, uh, to, before one another to, to, to walk in righteousness. Uh, in, in, but to actually enter into something that is corrective as like a real conflict, there needs to be a relationship in play. And that's why it's so important for us, even as a pastor, that I have close relationships with the elders and with the staff, that we can actually enter into those kinds of challenges. And this is not something that I've succeeded at uh, throughout the history of Door of Hope. I... Tend, I tend uh, toward avoidance. Some tend toward slander. Some tend toward harshness. Uh, and avoidance, slander, or harshness seems to be the cultural norm. I want you to see that Paul's conflict flows out of his already established relationship with the apostles. There is a relational bridge in place. And so we're going to consider three things in this text. The courage to confront and love, the dangers of hypocrisy uh, and compromise, and the call to stay in step with the Spirit. So let's begin with the courage to confront and love. It says, but when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. I want you to see the, the, the intensity of this language. I opposed him to his face. First of all, what was at stake if Peter the pillar of the church, upon this rock, Jesus said to Peter, uh, I will build my church. And yes, he was speaking of the rock that is Christ himself, but he was also saying upon the rock of who you are as my witness, I will build the church. So for Peter to fall into the trappings of these Judaizers, this is a major issue. And so this is a lot more at stake than just your common run-of-the-mill controversy or conflict within a church. This is a church leader who basically had incredible authority over an entire Jesus movement. And so Paul stood up to him. And what we need to understand is he opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. In other words, he was in sin. And that sin needed to be corrected because it had the ability to infiltrate and impact the entire community of faith. And the first thing I want us to understand when, we, when it comes to the courage to confront in love is that we need to take sin seriously. I don't think that we take sin seriously in the church today. I think that often we avoid talking about sin because it's an ugly thought, but really we need to understand this, is that you and I begin to sin the moment we wake up in the morning until we go to bed at night. Because sin in its essence, in its very definition, is that rebellion against God's rule over our lives. So if you're thinking, well, I'm not, you know, I'm not shooting up heroin in an alley. I'm not, I'm not, you know, out killing people. I'm not being unfaithful to my wife. Listen, Sin is every time you choose to take 
control of your own life as if you were your own God. Sin is also defined by not just a rebellion against God's rule, but it's a rejection of his grace. And what the scripture says about sin is this, is that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. When sin enters into a community, we need to understand just like conflict cannot be resolved apart from relationship, we also need to understand that sin is never done in a vacuum. That when we sin, our, what we think are private sins, our secret life that we think nobody sees, not only does God see it, but it does impact and affect those around us, whether we understand that or not. I've seen this firsthand in, in dealing with men over the years that were struggling with a secret pornography addiction. And when they came clean, when they confessed it, when they realized that they were literally were letting Satan directly into their house, they're often, the, what I would hear from them is my wife, like, was like all of a sudden was like, I could not figure out what was wrong. I could not figure out what the distance was, why there was, I knew something was wrong, but I didn't know what it was. Sin, even when you think it's in secret, it is not. It plays itself out because the wages of sin is what? It's death. And here, what we need to understand, what we can take encouragement from is that one of the greatest leaders, an eyewitness to the very life of Jesus, the one who Jesus said, I will build my church based upon your testimony, Peter. The Peter who was crucified upside down for his Lord also had a history of falling into the trappings of being impulsive, being proud, and even at times being fearful. I mean, what was the very thing that Jesus said to him on the night of his betrayal? I tell you three times tonight you will deny me before the rooster crows. And Peter's like, I will never deny you. And this is one of the insidious things about sin in our lives and in the, in the context of our community is that sin, why we need one another is because we often are oblivious to our own sinfulness, especially when it's subtle sins, when we are given over to things that, that may even from the outside seem like good things, like the little sins of this for a parent. When we put our children on the altar that where God belongs. I mean, this is, this is the whole emphasis. You want to read a, a profound book. Take some time. It's dense, and it is deep, but it's small, and it'll still take you a couple months, is Augustine's Confessions. And one of the things that, that Augustine deals with in great detail is what he calls displaced affections. And that is, is that the natural tendency of the human heart is to put onto the altar good things and make them supreme. And this is an issue, and this is why we so desperately need one another as a community to, in love, correct and move each other toward that transformation that comes through the gospel. Sin is not private. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I, I just was looking up and see a dear friend here who, whose friendship to me is, was so dear that he was able to speak into my life. Josh, you've not been a good listener. You've not actually been there for me. In a way that I was like, whoa, that's a, that, was, that was hard, but I knew that it came out of love, that the expectation is you can do better. And you can do better. We all can do better by the power of the Spirit and when we humble ourselves before the Lord and before one another, when we walk in transparency, when we walk in the light as He is in the light, when we own the things that we've done that is wrong. 
and we recognize that sin is never a private affair. Fidelity to the gospel is the second thing I want you to note, even in this verse, when it comes to the courage to confront and love. Fidelity to the gospel over favor with people. Um, Matthew 10, 37, Jesus himself said, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Paul is not going to be intimidated by Peter's position as an apostle because for Paul, the gospel is the supreme thing and they are, were to be servants, servant leaders, carriers of that gospel. And the love of God compelled Paul to stand up to one who is beloved by the church and considered a pillar within the church. And that, is a, that requires a tremendous amount of understanding of what it is that God has done for us. In order to enter, and this is where I began to be, become deeply um, uh, just convicted by my own lack of willingness to enter into conflict, is that essentially when I refuse to enter into conflict, I am not allowing the gospel to control. And secondly, I am not truly loving the person that I need to talk with to their face. It takes courage to confront and love. I mean, this is why Jesus spends so much time in Matthew 18 even defining for us how to enter into conflict as a community. He says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen, I love that. There's so much wisdom in that because believe me, our memories are not accurate. <laughs> memory is not an accurate thing. I just read Speak Memory by Nabokov, and he, the whole book, you start wondering, like, he keeps joking that he's giving you his autobiography, and then, and then in the same breath says, but what I'm telling you may not be trustworthy. It may be something I just created over time. Uh, and I think that it's a powerful reality. We need two or three witnesses to get to the truth of things. Uh, and I think that, that that is a good uh, rule of thumb. And then it says this. If, it says that every charge may be established by two, the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Man, we don't really exercise church discipline. <laughs> I mean, can you think of the last time at Door of Hope someone was stood up before the community of faith? Well, hopefully, because we are living so tightly as a community and so building those relational bridges that conflict can be handled way before something of that severity is ever needed. Uh, it's also, it's a, keep in mind that, these, that that whole concept was driven by very small communities, sort of house church communities, where uh, we're dealing with a different kind of beast when it comes to correction. And I, I don't feel like we have the silver bullet on church discipline by any means. Uh, and I don't even like the word, uh, I, you hear about the need for membership so that you can discipline people. I'm like, that seems like a weird reason to start membership. Seems like we should just call each other into covenantal relationship and live honestly in the light of the gospel before one another. Uh, this is the other thing that I think is really interesting. He says, I opposed him to his, what? Face. Face to face, not behind his back. What is one of the most damaging things that happens in the church is a critical spirit. A critical spirit that says, I, I couldn't, well, Josh hurt me deeply. I could never go to him. But the reality is, is that we are unlikely to hold that in and keep that silent. And, and I heard a pastor once say, this is, this is the reality. You have one of two options. You either forget the sin, 
You, you do what Noah's sons did. You basically walk in backwards and throw the cloak over your father's nakedness, refusing to even look on it. Or you deal with that person face to face, but there is no other option. If you're not willing to enter into the conflict, then you must forgive and forget. If you cannot forgive and forget, I promise you, if you don't enter into the conflict, you will bring the conflict to someone else that probably shouldn't be in the conflict. And this is a great issue. I, I, don't, I deal with this a lot with, with kids. Like, parents have different temperaments, so your children will, like, they're, they're smart. They can play you as parents. And our kids kind of figured that out really early. Um, hey, mom, dad said this. And then she's like, did you say that? I'm like, I didn't say that. It's like, but she told me you said this. And I'm like, what? And, and we, we've, we're trained to do this, to, to, to manipulate and to go behind one another's backs from an early age. Uh, and this is why it takes courage. Everything must be motivated by the gospel. Galatians 5, 17 Notice this. He says, for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. What's fascinating is that this is the only other time that Paul uses the word opposed. And he, he says, I opposed Peter to his face. And he contrasts the same idea between the spirit and the flesh. We need to confront the works of the flesh as a community of faith. And we need to do that in the power of the Spirit, for the Spirit is opposed to the flesh. And I think that this is, can only be done face-to-face, not behind the back. So the courage to confront and love. Secondly, the dangers of hypocrisy. Look at what, what Peter actually did. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. So this is, about, this is all about what we call table fellowship. Who was invited to the table? Now, the practice of the Jews... Uh, this was stringent. There was such, uh, such national racial pride amongst the Jews, and, and even within many of their own writings, uh, in the expansions of the, origi- of the Torah, uh, was all of these, these commentaries on how they were not to ever eat a meal uh, with Gentiles. Uh, and so this is actually what was entering into the church. There was segregation happening within the church, uh, which is a terrifying thing, and we're not that far removed from it, for there has been many seasons within America where segregation is still, uh, still alive and well, even if it's an unspoken reality and unintentional. Uh, one of the most challenging things I think that we're facing as a church is if the, if the church is that all people, all nations, all tongues worshiping around the throne of God, uh, that we should be seeing more diversity within our communities of faith. And, and look around, the diversity is minimal. And that, and that is an unspoken cultural um, emphasis that has infiltrated our faith. And we need to do all that we can to break down those walls and barriers. But look what Peter, Peter was putting barriers back up. He says, but when they, when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. Uh, and the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Now, first of all, I want you to see what Paul is accusing Peter of is not that Peter was believing a different gospel, it's that Peter was allowing the fear of a very small but powerful contingency uh, to influence his public activity. He knew the truth because God had already appeared to him in a vision in Acts chapter 10 telling him to eat with Gentiles. 
Peter allowed the pressure of this small vocal group, and this is really the reality often in churches, is that as a pastor, I can tell you, uh, you have two people, two kinds of people that will generally reach out and contact as, as a, those that are upset or those that, those that really just want to let you know that how just excited or how much they, it touched. Most people are somewhere in, in the middle of that, somewhere in that spectrum, uh, but they're not going to take the energy or the time to reach out. And often it is the vocal minority that can actually create the greatest amount of distress within a church when you have a, a fraction that breaks off and says, we don't like the way you're doing this. And I mean, Door of Hope has been blessed that we haven't dealt with much of that kind of controversy, but it does happen all the time. It can be over a theological issue. I mean, church splits happen all the time. And Peter was, was doing something that was actually quite damaging to the community of faith. And it was confusing for the very Gentiles that he had eaten with. And now he's actually pretending like that's something that he can't do or won't do. And this is what is at risk here. It is Peter and the others acting in insincerity and not from personal conviction. Their withdrawal from table fellowship with Gentile believers was not prompted by any theological conviction, but by their fear of a small pressure group. Now, apply that to your life. Think about the pressures that we can come under in the context of spending time with non-believers. Or even, even the ways that we, the pressures that we can come, we can put upon ourselves in hanging out in the context of a community of faith. The difficulty that we have in sharing our struggles or our, the, the areas of sin in our lives in fear of being judged. And so what we end up doing is that the fear of people leads naturally to hypocrisy. This is the idea of hypocrisy. It's living in an insincere fashion. It's pretending to be something that you're not. And, and this does great damage to the community of faith. It does great damage to your own soul because it can split us in half. And I believe that, that the fear of, um, of the opinions of others is a powerful reality that we're all going to fall victim to at some point or another. I mean, there are certain people in human history that just are utterly fearless. And, and, and I've known a few people like that that just, it's like it almost is a non-existent reality for them. Uh, that's, not the tr that's not what it is like for most of us. Most of us are maybe overly self-aware, overly self-conscious about what others think of us, fearful. Have you ever, are, are you the person, this is a great example. I, I remember eating dinner with a fearless Christian. Maybe even I would go as far as to use the word a, li a little bit overzealous. Uh, eating at a fine restaurant just a few months after I got saved. And, and her um, asking Darcy, Darcy, who wasn't a believer at all yet, Darcy and I, if we would hold hands for prayer in the middle of this restaurant, we're like a new believer. I was like, and Darcy, I'm like, oh, sweet Lord, she is never going to go to church now. And this woman just like, in the top of her voice, Jesus, we just think. It's like she was making sure that the entire restaurant was praying with us. That's that's excessive, uh, and that's not the kind of fearlessness that I'm pushing for. Uh, there, is, there is a fearlessness that isn't necessarily driven by obnoxiousness. Uh, but I think that the fear of the opinions of others is real. And I remember thinking to myself, oh my gosh, what are these people thinking? But then it, like, at the end of the day, when you really analyze that anxiety and that fear, it's like, well, I don't even know any of these people. What does it matter what they think? Uh, it matters. And I, I think that 
we should ma- it should matter enough that we act tactfully, but it should not matter so much that we act dishonestly. And I think that that is a very important distinction. Accommodating the truth of the gospel uh, to the prejudices of the community means preaching another gospel that has been emasculated of its power. That's what I would argue is going on. And if left uncorrected, it will lead to a divided heart. And this is the very thing that Jesus accuses the church uh, in Laodicea of. Remember what he says in Revelation chapter 3, verse 15 through 16? I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Here's the thing. When we don't walk in honesty, um, in, in the power of the Holy Spirit, if we don't walk in the light, the inevitability is that our hearts will over time grow cold. And when the heart grows cold, what happens then is that we will compromise in so many ways. Only the love of God can overcome the fear of people. Uh, we even just sang in that new song that I just introduced that, that it is the sacred fire of God's presence that inflames us, uh, that it's the, it's the fellowship of the burning heart. It's the, whole, it's the disciples on the road to Emmaus. What allows us to confront uh, the, the fear of man, the only thing that can overcome the fear of humanity is the love of God. Love alone conquers fear. And it is when our love of God rises up. I am terrified of speaking in front of people, but the love of Jesus compels me and it gives me the strength to override that natural human fear. And this is exactly what 1 John 4.18 says, there is, no love in, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. I wonder if Peter, in his own letter, in 1 Peter 2.1, wrote these words because of the Spirit's confronting work through Paul. Listen to what Peter says. Because the letter, uh, Peter's letters actually came later than the letter in Galatians. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and the envy and all slander. Do you ever wonder, do we ever take into consideration that God actually utilized by the Holy Spirit, Paul, to actually put Peter back on track? Which is what we all need for one another. We need that. You know, I sit through a 360 review, a staff review, and it's hard. It was awesome is that it was really hard the first year because it had never been done before, and so everyone had a lot of things to get off their chest. It's gotten so much better. Over the, and I look forward to them every year because what it does is it inspires me to be a more reflective man of the life of Jesus. And, and, and I'm willing uh, to hear the challenges. I think Josh could do better at listening. I think that he that, that he's, can be at times impulsive. He goes, and I just, Holy Spirit, show me the truth in everything that's being said. Don't let me get defensive. And where I'm defensive, it's probably because there's truth that's stinging me or unveiling some secret sin that I'm not even aware of. Because uh, nobody wants to be confronted with their failures. But how else do we grow? I mean, isn't that what you do when you go through school is that you, your papers are graded. If you didn't know where you got answers wrong, how would you actually learn? And I think that this is one of the, the realities is that I believe that Peter was able to write the letter that he wrote inspired by the Holy Spirit out of the direct experience of actually walking in hypocrisy. So powerful. So 
in closing, the call to stay in step with the Spirit. This is really key. But what does Paul do? When he sees the behavior of Peter and James and even Barnabas um, falling into the trappings uh, of actually departing from the gospel and, and out of fear of this group, what ends up happening is that the fear of man leads to hypocrisy, the pretense, and the pretense actually leads to legalism. They then began to try to apply law back upon the Gentile believers. Uh, and this is, this is a really unfortunate pattern. But it, look what Paul says. He goes, but when I saw their contact was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, to Peter, now, uh, just I want you to notice, there's a reason why Paul addresses Peter before all of them. Because, yes, Jesus said, bring the issue to someone privately first. But Peter's unique position as the pillar of the church, the correction required unique circumstances. And I believe that that is why it was done in front. And Paul was invited into that circle. And so he says, before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Um, This is so, I love this, that they was not in step with the truth of the gospel. First, I want us to see here that the gospel must be the litmus test for all conduct, for it is our foundation. And this is why I keep hammering home, can you articulate what the gospel actually is? Uh, 1 Corinthians 3.11, Paul says this, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Uh, Peter himself refers to Jesus as the chief cornerstone. Once again, he wasn't acting like Jesus was the chief cornerstone in this particular circumstance. He was trying to build on a different kind of foundation, and it required public confrontation um, and correction that was, that was motivated by love of Christ and a love for Peter and for the apostles and for the church. And I love this because the gospel is what motivated Paul. And let me just give you, here's the clearest, if you guys want to know in Scripture where the clearest statement of what the gospel is, is found, it's actually found in 1 Corinthians um, 15, verses 6 to 11. And this is what Paul says is the gospel, because he's saying they, they are here not in step with the truth of the gospel. What does he mean by that? Well, listen to what he says the gospel is. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That's essentially, in a nutshell, (laughs) the gospel. And that he appeared to Cephas, to Peter, then to the twelve. Notice Paul, once again, establishing he sees Peter's apostleship. He is not challenging that. Uh, And then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep, they've died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. What an amazing line. Uh, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder. Classic Paul line. I worked harder than all of them. <laughs> Though it was not I but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. Notice Paul, even in 1 Corinthians, is saying, same gospel given to Peter, given to James, given to the apostles. Uh, 
is, is the same gospel that was given to me, and we preach this gospel together. And the gospel is good advice, not good advice about what you should do, but good news about what has already been done for you in Jesus. Jesus plus anything is nothing. That is Paul's gospel. And so 1 Timothy 2, verses 4 and 6, Paul says this, God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. So how do we stay in step with the truth of the gospel? And the answer actually is found in Galatians once again, Paul using a parallel verse. Galatians 5.25, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Peter, and what this reveals to us, you guys, is that the gospel is a gospel of freedom. It liberates us. It sets us free. But liberation creates responsibility. The moment you are free, you're not free to do whatever you want. You are free to do what is right. But because you have the freedom to do what is right, because you have been set free by the gospel and the path to righteousness is narrow and there are few who find it, that means that there is one way, as Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes through the Father but through me. As Chesterton said, if there is one way, then that means there's a thousand ways to fall. It means that that freedom often can be used to turn back to the flesh. And what it does is it grieves the Holy Spirit, it quenches his activity in our life, and it hides the presence of God from us. You know what's fascinating is that God actually meets us in our sin when we confess it. But he hides himself from us when we refuse to enter into the challenges, the controversies, the conflicts together as a community of faith. And so here we see grace confronting. We see the courage to confront and love, the dangers of hypocrisy and compromise, and the call to stay in step with the Spirit. May we be a Spirit-filled community that lovingly call each other onward and upward toward King Jesus till he comes again. Amen?